Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Millions of L.A. County residents and businesses can resume outdoor watering after news that urgent repairs to a pipeline that brings water from the Colorado River to Southern California have wrapped up early. KCRW's Daryl Satsman fills us in. Communities served by the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California were asked to stop outdoor watering on September 6th as the agency fixed leaks on a 36-mile pipeline that is a key conduit for millions of customers in Long Beach, Glendale, Burbank, Pasadena, and Beverly Hills, among others. And it appears that many people heeded that plea. The MWD says water use in the affected areas dropped by about 30%, that despite the period coinciding with one of the most severe heat spells in years. The pipeline repair was supposed to take 15 days, but the agency says the work was finished ahead of schedule. The resumption of full water deliveries is not a license to run the hose and sprinklers with abandon, of course. California remains in the grip of a withering drought, and officials continue to urge water conservation. For the California Report, I'm Daryl Satzman in Los Angeles. Open agricultural burning is a useful tool for farmers, but its high particulate emissions are harmful to San Joaquin Valley residents. Air regulators plan to phase out the practice by 2025, but air quality advocates have doubts after years of inaction. In the second part of KVPR's series, When the Smoke Clears, reporters Carrie Klein and Monica Vaughn explore some of those doubts. I'm Monica. I'm a community engagement reporter in Fresno, and I'd like to introduce you to someone. My name is Norma. I'm a 27-year-old lifelong resident of the Central Valley. Norma Vargas spends a lot of time thinking about breathing. She deals with chronic, severe asthma. You can't breathe in all the way, and you're starting to gasp for air. She grew up in Lindsay, surrounded by orange groves. When those trees grow old and unproductive, farmers burn them to clear their fields. I'm Carrie, a health and science reporter at KVPR, and that burning contributes significantly to the polluted valley air that makes Vargas cough. You could see it from miles away. It's just like a dark thing of smoke. In 2003, the same year she was hospitalized with bronchitis, a state law planned to prohibit ag burning in the name of public health. But here's the thing. The ban never happened. Regulators with the San Joaquin Valley Air District put it off year after year, claiming the costs would be too much for growers. That's one reason why Mark Rose of the National Parks Conservation Association argues the Air District has prioritized agricultural profits over health for decades. They only look at the cost to industry. They don't look at the missed school days or the hospital bills and the billions of dollars that it's costing. Catherine Garupa White of the Central Valley Air Quality Coalition also argues the Valley Air District doesn't crack down enough on illegal burning. And so, without better enforcement, she has no faith this new plan to phase out burning will be any more successful. Do you believe that that will happen? 
No, I think that's a nice theory. Let's go back to 2003. That first state law banning ag burning contained one critical loophole. It said the Air District may postpone the ban if alternatives are economically unfeasible to farmers. And that's what the district did. Local regulators requested postponements, and the state air board, which is supposed to provide the guardrails to local air districts, approved six times since 2005. That just blew me away. That's Dean Flores, the former state senator who wrote that law. Our own air board giving a pass to polluters, it was not the right thing to do. He is now a member of that state air board. The Valley Air District argues burn alternatives really weren't feasible at that time. Now, in response to the concerns of residents and advocates, the Air District's Jamie Holt says the agency is working to educate farmers on the alternatives and offer them grants. We understand those concerns and we're focused on getting this done as quickly as possible. She says the agency is committed to public health and is expecting a 70 percent reduction this year on the way to a full ban in 2025. For Norma Vargas, however, 2025 just isn't soon enough. There is concern as to why it took this long when this has been an issue for a long time. Especially when it's communities like hers, rural, majority Latino, and often poor, that have been harmed the most. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein. And I'm Monica Vaughn. This is part of the series When the Smoke Clears, produced with the support of the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism Impact Fund. You can find the whole series at kvpr.org. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. And in other news, Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a package of bills aimed at reforming the state's cannabis regulations. One would make it illegal for employers to discriminate against workers who smoke marijuana while off the job and away from the workplace. Another would seal old cannabis-related convictions. This comes as the governor is directing state officials to study the health impacts of high-potency cannabis. KQED's health correspondent April Domboski explains. Since California legalized recreational marijuana, the concentrations of THC in pot products has gone up. Existing research shows this increases the risk of dependency and mental health problems, including cannabis-induced psychosis and even schizophrenia. Physicians like Lynn Silver are happy the governor is taking an interest in studying this further. I'm looking forward to seeing the research, but I would also say we can't use funding more research as an excuse to not pay attention to the research that we already have. 
Silver says the state should take regulatory action now by requiring sellers to stock products that have lower concentrations of THC and making sure high-potency products have warning labels. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. Experts at UC San Diego studying extortion in Tijuana are saying that crime is much more rampant than previously believed. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis dug in to find out more. Researcher Romain Lacour spent a year walking the streets of Tijuana talking to business owners about what he likes to call an invisible crime. The huge challenge about extortion and protection racket in Mexico is that it's, it is one of the most underreported uh, crime, less than 1%. Uh, of, of extortion cases are actually reported. But when business owners refuse to pay, extortion often leads to more visible acts of violence, like arson and murder. Lecour believes that addressing extortion as its root cause could reduce violent crime in Tijuana. With an average of more than 2,000 homicides a year, it's one of Mexico's most dangerous cities. But he says that politicians have little incentive to actually address the problem. That's because people don't usually talk about it, and there's no big public outcry like there is with murder. The authorities will tell you, my constituents ask me to do something about homicide, because the numbers and the figures for homicide are extremely visible. Why should I invest time, energy, money, my career, my reputation in tackling something that doesn't appear on on the record? Lacour says that extortion will continue to happen in Tijuana until elected officials have the political will to do something about it. For the California Report, I'm Gustavo Solis in San Diego. Californians will soon have another option for what to do with their loved ones' bodies after they die. Compost them. Starting in 2027, human composting will be legal in California, thanks to a bill that Governor Newsom signed over the weekend. Katrina Spade is founder and CEO of Recompose, a Seattle-based company that composts bodies. She wants composting to become the default death care option. Because when you choose human composting, you're sequestering carbon, you're replenishing the soil, and you're just always reminded that we're part of the grand natural ecosystem. We're not just humans on our own. We're out there, part of nature. Spade says that many people are surprised that it only takes about a month for a human body to decompose. About half of the families she's worked with chose to take the soil home and spread it somewhere meaningful. We had a family that brought the cubic yard of soil to their neighborhood and invited all the neighbors to come and take some back to their homes and back to their gardens. California is the fifth state in the country to legalize human composting. In a wide-ranging interview that aired on CBS's 60 Minutes on Sunday, President Joe Biden stepped into some controversy with his comments on the pandemic. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's But the pandemic is over. That was President Biden speaking with 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley. The remarks have already faced backlash from many in the medical community as COVID-19 continues to result in hundreds of deaths and thousands of infections each day in the U.S. For more on where we stand with the pandemic, we're joined by Dr. Bob Wachter, chair of medicine at UC San Francisco. Dr. Wachter, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So tell us, is the pandemic really over? Well, there's no bright line that separates the pandemic from what follows the pandemic. I think it's reasonable to look at the situation now and say that the acute threat is far lower than it was, that the situation is relatively stable and probably going to be a facsimile 
of what we're going to be facing for the next several years. So at some point, it was reasonable to say we've moved out of the pandemic phase, whether it was yesterday or a week from now or a month from now. It's a little bit of a judgment call, but in some ways we might as well get on with it. Given the fact that the Biden administration has just launched another campaign to get people this latest COVID-19 booster, how damaging can these comments be, even if we are maybe in the outside phases of this? Well, it's hard to know. I guess we'll see. It's possible that the president's comments will cause people to pay less attention. Uh, But it's also possible the president's comments will increase the level of trust. The concern is they're just going to stop listening unless they believe we're giving them an accurate assessment. And the accurate assessment is COVID is a real threat. There are still three or 400 people a day dying with a diagnosis of COVID, still tens of thousands of cases a day. But there are a lot of things that individuals and society can do to protect ourselves. And I think they're trying to sort of lay that out honestly. That's not an unreasonable thing to do. Whether it's the pandemic's over today or two months from now, I I think is almost inconsequential. It really is. How do we shift toward a ongoing strategy for ourselves and as a society that has us keep ourselves as safe as possible while also beginning to get back to a more normal life because the threat is clearly less than it was a year or two ago. And on that note, you know, you had a very interesting Twitter thread about indoor dining, and it seems like you've changed your stance. What's your reasoning for feeling it's safe to do so right now in the Bay Area? When I did a lot of math, and people can look it up on Twitter if they want to see all the math, (laughs) I came out with a calculation that the average, that the chances that any individual person, for example, my waiter or someone sitting me with dinner, has COVID and feels fine is about one in a hundred. It's not zero. So there's a risk there. But the chances that I will get COVID from from going out to dinner are probably one in a hundred or lower. The chances of getting some version of long COVID, which I worry about, my wife has it, it's not good, uh, is about one in a thousand. The chances of dying from a COVID that I contract going to dinner is about one in 200,000. Those are levels of risk that I'm willing to accept if I want to go out with friends or family and it's too cold to eat outside. I'd still prefer to eat outside over inside. I think it's safer. It's not like I'm saying it's perfectly safe, but it has crossed my threshold to say the risk is low enough that I'm now willing to do it. I'm not telling anybody it should cross their threshold or not. I think people should make their own choices. Obviously, for when I go in a restaurant, it's packed. Bars are packed. So a lot of people have already made this choice long ago. All right. Well, thank you again. That was Dr. Bob Wachter, Chair of Medicine at UC San Francisco. Dr. Wachter, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, September 20th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals. PersonalCapital.com The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking.
Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.